Do you know what Jesus is doing for you today, this morning? Uh, most of us know Jesus died about 2,000 years ago for our sins, but, but do we really understand what he is doing for us now? The Apostle Paul said, If we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more will we be saved by his life? Jesus is a living, risen Savior. He lives today, and he lives today to save you right here and now. Spurgeon said, If in his uttermost weakness he redeemed us by his death, Now that he is in all his power and glory, much more he is able to save us by his life. Verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost or to the utmost degree to the greatest degree possible. He saves so completely that nothing else needs to be added. He can save you from all your sins, all your guilt, all your shame. He can save you from suffering in eternity for the guilt of your sins. He can save us from the judgment and wrath of a holy God that our sins deserve. But He not only saves us from the horrible consequences of sin. He saves us out of our sin and shame and brokenness into new life. He wants to save you from your impatience with your children, from your irritation with your spouse, from your anger towards that person at work or at school. He is able to heal and make us whole. And he intercedes for us until we become fully like him. He can take our worst sins, our worst faults, the most offensive aspects of our personality, our worst habits or addictions, and he can make us pure and loving and holy like he is. He can save us from our anxieties and our fears, and he can teach us to be strong and courageous. No matter how weak or how wretched or how hopeless we may feel, He can take us to the uttermost glory and to perfection. He can save us. He can save you to the, to the uttermost. Adolf Sapphire, an older commentator on Hebrews, said, His death for our sins was only removing an obstacle. He intercedes for us that his life might be abundantly in us and that all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and all the temporal blessings which we require for our safety, comfort, and usefulness may be bestowed upon us by the love of the Father and through the indwelling Holy Ghost. And he does this, this this complete, total salvation, the, the, the complete saving of us, body, soul, and spirit forever on into eternity to the uttermost uh, reaches of time and the ultimate salvation. He does this for those who draw near to God through Him. That's key. For those who feel the burden of their sin, who feel the brokenness of life, 
for those who long to live near God, for those who long to live in the presence of God, to experience the glory of God, to those who draw near to God through Him, this ministry of Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. Those who come to God through Jesus, He saves those people in a complete, total, and perfect way. And that's what Christianity is. And one of the one of the huge problems in the church today and in Christian circles and just in Christianity in general is that is we don't we don't realize that but Christianity is drawing near to God through Jesus. I read the sad story of a young man just a couple of days ago who said that he lost his faith and actually the title of the article was I lost my faith in a Chick-fil-A. Now the story had nothing to do about Chick-fil-A except that When he was there, for some reason, he just decided to quit on his faith. He said he was homeschooled with a strong emphasis on debate, the written word, and defending the faith. He memorized, he said, 22 books of the New Testament and was involved in passionately defending creationism publicly. Then at the age of 23, in a Chick-fil-A, he said he lost his faith. But as I read his story, I did not see any part of his experience that would be described as drawing near to God through Jesus. He had experienced a lot of Christian culture, but no experience with Jesus and the Father. A Christian is one who draws near to God through Jesus. And that's what we are here in church for we are here to draw near to god through jesus and god calls us into a life of communion we're called into a life of continually drawing near being near living near a life of communion with god through jesus that is christianity and jesus saves us to the uttermost by always living to intercede for us. The root of the word intercede in Greek means to get or to obtain. Jesus presents all of your needs to the Father, and he always obtains from the Father all the mercy, all the grace, all the help you need to completely and totally and perfectly save you forever. Now, the intercession of Jesus does not mean that the Father is against us and Jesus is for us, so Jesus has to beg him to be kind to us against his will. The Father and the Son in perfect oneness have planned all of this for our salvation. F.F. Bruce, uh, in his commentary on Hebrews, said, Jesus is not to be thought of as standing ever before the the Father with outstretched arms, with strong crying and tears pleading our cause in the presence of a reluctant God. But he is to be thought of as a throned priest king asking what he will from a Father who always hears and grants his request. 
In one sense, Jesus intercedes for us merely by his presence. As someone has said, he intercedes for us by his wounds. He is the lamb slain who was slain before the foundation of the world. And and he intercedes for us in one sense simply as the lamb who was slain for our sins. But this verse also shows Jesus or presents Jesus as actively presenting our needs to the Father, actively interceding now, actively uh, calling to the Father, actively presenting our needs to the Father. And not only actively uh, interceding now, but living always, it says, for that purpose. I mean, this isn't just like a... uh, third or fourth or tenth priority on Jesus' list. He always lives for this purpose to make intercession for you, to go to the Father to obtain what you need right now, today. David Platt said, This picture of Jesus' work of intercession at the Father's right hand means that he is always working for our good. He is always in the midst of our struggles. He is interceding for our perseverance in the midst of our temptations. He is interceding for our power and our ability to overcome temptation. When I intercede for someone, that's me saying, I want to pray for that person. I want to represent that person before God and ask for his blessing. So the picture we have of Jesus right now and always is this is what he's doing. He is dispensing the blessings of God in our lives. The grace, the strength, the mercy that we need at every point in our lives. He's dispensing it as our intercessor. He's making it possible for us to have all that God has available for us at every moment through Jesus, our intercessor. Great quote. And this intercession the writer of Hebrews tells us, goes on forever because Jesus lives forever. He always lives to make intercession for us. It may seem like a very mundane, uh, common thought to you, but uh, as I was studying for this passage, it it just rocked my soul that Jesus always lives to make intercession for me. He's he's alive for me today. He's alive for you today. And he will be alive for you this afternoon. He'll be alive for you tomorrow and every day of your life. And his purpose, it says his purpose in living, he always lives, is to intercede for us. His purpose in living is to be for us, to, to intercede for us, to help us. John Calvin said, How great is this love toward us. Christ lives for us, not for himself. It's an amazing thought. And just time and time again, as I was studying this passage, a thought just came back to me. Jesus, read, Jesus is for you forever. Jesus is for you forever. He always lives to make intercession for you. Every one of you can say that. Maxwell can say, Jesus is for me forever and I say Jesus is for you uh, because you don't intercede for people 
that you are not for. You don't intercede for people you are against. You don't intercede for people you don't care about or for people you don't love. In Romans 8, Jesus' intercession for us is proof. It's given as proof that God is for us and that we can be, never be separated from his love. And it asks the question, where is the one who condemns? Where is the one who accuses you? It's not the Father and it's not the Son. God is the one who justifies and Jesus is the one who's interceding for you. Jesus is the one who's pulling for you. He's not the one who condemns or accuses. Spurgeon said, the Lord Jesus Christ in his perpetual priesthood lives for the purpose of being the advocate, defender, patron, mediator, and interposer for his people. And even if you don't understand what all those words mean, you clearly get the idea from that Spurgeon quote that Jesus has your back. He's your advocate, defender, patron, mediator, and interposer. He's there to support you. He's there to back you, to supply you with all you need. And nothing can make you soar like an eagle through life than to know this. It really can make you soar like an eagle to know this, even through, your, through really hard times and through really hard things. Robert Murick McChain, and I'm never, never sure if his name is pronounced McChain or McChaney. I've heard it both ways, but anyway, it doesn't matter. But Robert Murick McChain said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet, difference makes, or distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. You know, it's kind of like, well, if I, could, if I could just know that Jesus is right there in the chair before, beside me praying for me, man, I wouldn't fear anything. And his, well, he is. He is praying. He might not be literally in that chair, but he's at the right hand of the Father praying for you right now for what you need right now today. A man named Henry Bosch said, during a great, deep, personal crisis, I realized the truth of Hebrews 7 in a new and wonderful way. Satan seemed to be attacking me on every side. So I asked the Lord to plead for me. The next day the problem was solved and I knew it was the Lord's special intervention. Never before had I been so conscious of the Savior's high priestly ministry. So when you woke up this morning, whether you realize it or not, you were, you were in God's favor because of the intercession of Jesus. Jesus is for you right now in this moment. When you wake up in the night, He is for you. When you're run down or worn out or tired, He is praying for you. When you're in severe trials and testing, Jesus is obtaining mercy and grace for you. When you're battling sin, Jesus is there to help you. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Every day, through all the drama of life, Jesus is there interceding. And our great need, our great need is really just to comprehend this. Our great need is to know this and to comprehend this, uh, to believe it, and to live in this reality. Our great need is to actually have 
confidence in Jesus and that he's interceding for us all the time, every day, all the way, all the way to the uttermost ends of our salvation. And so often we gravitate toward outward things to fix us or to relieve us or to make us happy when our need is an inward revelation of Jesus as our high priest. That's what we need. And that's what I pray for. I probably pray that for all of us this morning, that we would have a greater inward or inner revelation of Jesus Christ as our high priest and all that that means and how that impacts our lives. In some sense, this was the problem with the Hebrews to, to whom this letter was written. They, they did not see the glory or the perfection of what they had in Christ as their high priest. And so they wanted to go back to the forms and the sacrifices of the human priesthood. And the writer of Hebrews was concerned about their dim view of Christ, or I should maybe should say their dimming view of Christ. Their view of Christ had sunk to the point that angels and Moses and the Levitical priests were crowding out the glory of Christ in their minds and hearts. And this loss of focus on Jesus, this loss of confidence in Jesus was leading them to a place of grave spiritual danger. But just like the Hebrew believers, our well-being, your well-being, has to do with what you really think about Jesus. Your spiritual well-being has so much to do with how you really see Jesus, how great you really see Jesus to be, how perfect and glorious you see Him to be and His work on your behalf to be. Our joy, our level of joy, has so much to do with what we really think about Jesus. Our hope has to do with what we really think about Jesus. And we we need to see His sacrifice for our sins is so perfect. His death on the cross for our sins, His atoning sacrifice is so perfect, so complete, that it cancels out the need for any other psychological or religious system to deal with our sin, our guilt, and our brokenness. And we need to see that His present saving work is so good and so marvelous and so capable of dealing with our needs that it cancels out our need for any other system to make us whole and happy and complete. When we say that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost, I mean, the, the obvious conclusion is, what else do we need then? I mean, if he's able to, to do it completely all the way, what else do we need? Well, what does this have to do with this guy named Melchizedek? Uh, the first part of this chapter, for the most part, makes no sense to us unless we understand what was going on in the mind of these Jewish Christians to whom it was written. We, and I speak of of us here in, in this room, we were never taught that the Levitical priests were our avenue to God. But these Jewish believers were. They were taught that. And at one time, they placed complete confidence in the Levitical priesthood. And they were now in danger of losing confidence in Jesus and going back to rely 
on the work of their priests and the whole system of the law that went with that. And so these Jewish believers had doubts about looking to Jesus alone, partly because he was not from the tribe of Levi. From From the time of Moses, no one could be a priest unless he was from the tribe of Levi and from the family of Aaron. But Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, Levi or the family of Aaron. He was from the tribe of Judah. And this sowed seeds of doubt about Jesus or doubts about leaving the law and the Levitical priesthood behind and trusting him only as a sufficient and perfect high priest for their salvation. And so the, the writer of Hebrews deals with this grave error by pointing to an obscure person in the Old Testament with a weird-sounding name to prove that Jesus is vastly superior to the Levitical priests. And so I'm going to cover this. It's going to be a kind of a big-picture view. I'm not going to get clear down in a lot of uh, very fine details about it, but I, I, I want to give you the picture of this because it's, it's important. And the, the conclusion is, is especially important. In Genesis chapter 14, and those of, those of you that were in the men's study when we studied Abraham, you remember this story. Abraham's nephew Lot was captured by a coalition of kings. All right? And so Uncle Abraham went out to rescue Lot, and so he went to battle and he defeated these kings to get him back. And in those days when you defeated a bunch of other kings, you got what they called the spoils of war. So Abraham came back from this battle with wealth and property, the spoils of battle. And after this great victory, a king by the name of Melchizedek came out to meet him. And verse 18 in Genesis 14 says he was a priest of the Most High God. Well, Abraham recognized the greatness of this man, and so he gave him as an offering. He, he honored him, and he gave him a tenth of all the stuff that he gained from this battle. And in turn, Melchizedek turned and blessed. He pronounced a blessing from God upon Abraham. And this is a story that we read about in Hebrews 7, 1 1 and 2. John just read it for us this morning. And the key points is that this Melchizedek, this man from Genesis, I believe he was a human being, he was a great person, he was a priest of the Most High God, but the key points that this Melchizedek is a priest, or he was a priest. He's a priest of the Most High God. He is a king of a city of Salem, which means peace. So he was a king of peace. His name, the name itself, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And he had no genealogy, no no genealogy given in the Bible, or no descendants listed in the Bible. So in this historical sense, you could say that he had no beginning or no end. And I, I think literally what it's meaning is that he has no beginning and he has no end that we know about. The Bible didn't record that. And all of this is meant to signal us 
to indicate to us that he is a type of Christ or he is a picture of Christ. And he is a picture of Christ in the, in the very obvious ways. Jesus is a priest and Jesus is a king and Jesus is a king of righteousness and a prince of peace. And Jesus has no beginning and has no end. Literally, he is the eternal son of God without beginning and without end. And so all these things about Melchizedek are supposed to, to, to signal our minds that, oh, this, this man is pointing us to Christ. He is a type of Christ. And that's all there is about Melchizedek in Genesis. It's a very short and a very brief passage. And I think we would probably just pass over it and forget about this guy. Except there's a very important messianic prophecy or a prophecy made about the coming Messiah in Psalm 110 verse 4. God himself has sworn an oath and he will never change his mind saying, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Wow. And so the radical thing about the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, the shocking thing, okay, the thing that really drives home the point is that this priesthood has nothing whatsoever to do with the tribe of Levi or the family of Aaron from which all the Levitical priests came. And so the the author of Hebrews is reminding these Jews to whom these believing Jews who so venerated the Levitical priesthood, he's reminding them, hey guys, there was another order of priests that existed before Abraham, before Moses, before any Levite priest ever performed a sacrifice, there was another priesthood. And it's called the priesthood of Melchizedek. And on top of that, from this Old Testament story, we learn that Abraham clearly viewed Melchizedek as his superior by giving him a tenth of the spoils of war. And Melchizedek, from his greater position, pronounced a blessing on Abraham. One of the verses I don't have in the bulletin, but verse 6 goes on to say, this man, Melchizedek, who does not have a descendant from the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So the, the key point is that Abraham showed that he regarded Melchizedek as superior to him by giving him a tenth of the spoils of the war. And also the fact that Melchizedek pronounced a blessing upon Abraham, that showed that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because the inferior, and this is from Scripture, from, from, verse, from Hebrews 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Making sense? Everybody 
kind of with me at least? Okay. And then one more thing that, you, that you're going to have to wrap your mind around. Okay. Melchizedek's superiority is not only over Abraham, but his superiority extends over the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, as explained in verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. In other words, when, when Abraham... When Abraham knelt down before this king and priest of God, Melchizedek, and he honored him with gifts, he did that not just for himself, but his descendants. The descendants of Abraham were identified with him in that act of honoring Melchizedek. So, the writer of Hebrews says, so so not only uh, was Abraham inferior to Melchizedek, Or we could say it the other way around. Not only was Melchizedek superior to Abraham, Melchizedek was superior to Levi and the Levitical priests that came forth from him because by Abraham honoring them and giving them the tenth, they, in a sense, did too. But here's the point of all of this, okay? Since Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and greater than Levi, and Jesus is of this superior priesthood because Jesus is of the priesthood of Melchizedek, then Jesus is greater than the Levitical priests. And you might just sit there and say, oh, hum, Okay. But to the Jews, this like rocked their world. This was like shocking truth. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. Jesus really is greater than Moses and the law of Moses and the Levites and the Levitical priesthood and all that had to do with that. Jesus is greater and better and has more glory and is more perfect and is able to more more completely save us. He's able to save us to the uttermost. And ultimately, uh, the Melchizedek priesthood, of which Jesus is a part, is superior because it has no end. All the Levitical priests, every single one of them would do their duty for a lifetime and then die. They're just human, like us. They'd serve for a while and then they would die. But The writer of Hebrews says Jesus continues as a priest by the power of an indestructible life. I love that. We serve a Savior who who lives by has the power of an indestructible life. Verse 23 of Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He hold, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. And then we come to, to verse 25, which is the conclusion of it all. The verse which just lifted my heart to glory, and I hope it does yours too. Consequently, or therefore, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Alright, I'm going to try to bring this down to some applications for us and then we'll see how the Holy Spirit leads to close our service here. First application, very simply, is that we can go to Jesus with our burdens our cries, our tears, our longings, our desires, our fears. We can go to Jesus with all of our needs. He's there. His, his role is to intercede for us, for all that we need to, to get us through this entire journey of salvation all the way to the very end. And we can tell him these things with assurance that he will intercede for us and obtain the help and the grace that we need. My parents loved music and they always had music on around the home. And uh, there's, there was a, an Irish tenor uh, that sang with a, in, a tenor sings a little higher, higher pitched voice than, than most men do. And uh, he sang this song that I, I, I still remember and think of it to this day. The song went like this, I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear these burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. That's all there is to it. Isn't that enough? You know, it is. It's a great thing to know that no matter what you're feeling, what you're going through, what you're struggling with, Whatever you feel like your need is, and if you're like me, I feel needs all the time. I feel in, inadequate many, multiple times a day. And it's just so great to, to, go, to know that we can go to Jesus and know that he's interceding for us and even asking him to intercede for us. Second, because of the intercession of Jesus, we are never alone. We are never on our own. Or I'll put it more directly towards you. Because of the intercession of Jesus, you are never alone. You are never on your own. Also on our trip, I read a, a book that had a quote from Malcolm Muggeridge in it. And uh, I, won't, I don't have time to go into his background. But he said he's a believer. He was a, he was a British journalist and came to know Christ. But he said this. He said, the first thing I remember about the world... The first thing that I remember about the world is that I was a stranger in it. Now, the first thing he remembers, or the first feeling he remembers as a young boy was loneliness, was a sense of being a stranger in the world. There's an old song, which it's a song I I really, really like. It's it's called uh, Love is the Answer by Utopia. Um, if anybody, anybody here know that song? No? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, in this song, it's, there, it has the haunting words, we are, we are all alone and we are never heard. We are all alone and we are never heard. And a lot of people feel that. A lot of people feel that pervasive or deep-seated sense of loneliness. And 
Jesus, as our high priest, solves our pervasive sense of loneliness. You, if you draw near to God through Jesus, you always have someone who hears you and who cares enough to intercede for you. You always have someone for you. We have, you always have someone who has your back. You always have someone to support, your, to support you. You are never alone and you're never on your own and contrary to what that song says, you are always heard. Third, we have a duty to keep ourselves conscious that Jesus is always living, always interceding for our present help and our eternal well-being. Absolutely, yeah. We have a duty or responsibility to keep ourselves conscious that Jesus is our high priest, basically. We have a duty to, to, to keep ourselves conscious that Jesus is always living, always interceding for our present help and our eternal well-being. In other words, we, just, we, we need to just conscious, consciously think about how Jesus is always there for us, how he's pulling for us, how he's always able to help us and every situation how he sympathizes with us how how he's actively undertaking for our joy and our peace and our future glory he's he's always working for our 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 present and our future salvation he's just he's just preserving us he's preserving us always saving us through all the stuff that we go through through all the problems, all the drama that we go through, all the battles, all the battles with sin and shame and temptation, all the emotional struggles, all, all the struggles of every kind. He is always there for us, interceding for us, pulling for us. He's there for that purpose, to go to God, to obtain from God, from God what we need. And this has to become the focus of our soul. This has to become something that we think about. That's why I say we have a duty. We have a duty to keep ourselves aware of these things. We have a duty to keep our eyes on Jesus. And I love what Josh shared, just that brief testimony earlier. You know, just get his feeling, feelings of battling, feelings of insecurity and whatever. And uh, it's just so real. I appreciate Josh sharing that. But looking off to Jesus, we find healing and wholeness and joy and our souls get revived and and lifted back up because because we we see him we see jesus at the father's right hand pulling for us interceding for us obtaining our help fourth we should thank him for interceding for us we should just go through life with a with a grateful attitude uh you know, for what Jesus did for us on the cross, certainly. But, but also, we should go through life with a deep sense of grat- gratitude for the fact that he is living right now today. He's alive right now today, actively presenting our needs before the, before the, the Father. Man, that, that is love. I mean, that is love. I mean, that, that really should lift, lift our souls in our lives heavenward you know by the time that you realize uh 
things are falling apart or that you're facing temptation um, or that you're dealing with some kind of evil, Jesus already knows that and is interceding for you. And this is something to regularly thank him for. And, you know, instead of, you know, when you get up tomorrow morning, instead of thinking about how uh, tired or, or miserable or how much, uh, how, how miserable you feel or how much work is ahead of you, uh, start thanking Jesus for, for already being at work for you, for already interceding and presenting your needs to the Father for that moment and for the day ahead. So Jesus is uh, a, a wonderful, perfect, glorious uh, high priest. He's, he's able to do the whole job. He's, uh, he's able to save you to the uttermost. There's, you know, there's just nothing lacking in any way about the way he's able to save us. And it gives you a great, great deal of confidence in going through life when we know Jesus like this.